fidgety ones. That one's mine. He's really fidgety. If you want to, you can uh, take the Bibles and your Bibles and open to 1 Samuel chapter 14. The latter part will be um, the basis of this morning's message. And um, uh, before we get going, just occurs to me, you know, I, I, I would be the first to say that I've many times taken for granted the freedom that we have in this, in this country. But one of the benefits of being able to travel around the world, is, as, as I've been able to do, fortunate to do, is you meet people who really don't have freedom. And I, I'll never forget sitting across the table from K.P. Yohanan, um, who is a, a missionary church planter educator in, in, in I- India, and him telling about the brutal beatings that he received um, simply because he believed in, in Jesus. And um, so we ought to be thankful for God's providential gracious freedom that he's provided for us at the same time. It just um, stick your finger up in the air, lick it, and kind of figure out which way the winds are blowing in our country, and you just realize that there will come a point, and you can already feel it, where, um, where we may not be free to worship like we do or say, say the name of Jesus. And uh, the question that goes through my mind is, are God's people prepared for that? Um, are we prepared, even if there's no rights to worship, are we still going to uh, worship the Lord, uh, live or die? Um, some pretty Im- important questions. Um, of course, we live in light of the, the true Independence Day, and and it's the, 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 the anchor, the spring out of which we live, and that is the day that Jesus um, freed us from death and um, freed us from sin and condemnation and, and took our place uh, at the cross and then took God's wrath for us. And so we live as as free people, regardless of the politics that we're under. And at the same time, we look with great hope to the, to the great Independence Day yet coming, and that is the day that our king comes back and sets all things right and frees us from the physical bondage of decay and raises our bodies back from the dead and, and recreates this planet and gives us a home. And that's, that will be a day in which every president and senator and, and uh, assemblyman and king will bow. Um, to the only one who can make all things right, and his name is Jesus. Let me, let me pray and, and uh, open this. Lord, I am so grateful for, for who you are. I'm, I'm grateful, we are grateful for your word, for in your word we see just a mountain, um, a powerful mountain called your kingdom. Uh, we know that you reign, you reign over the big things like universes and galaxies. At the same time, you reign over molecules and, and atoms and you reign over the hearts of kings and over the hearts of enemies. And, and we just thank you that we can live in the certainty of that truth. Um, at the same time, living in the certainty of the truth that your love, your sovereignty is a sovereign love. Um, that you knew us and you had our names on your mind before you ever gave birth to the first star. For the, before the first wave hit the beach, you knew our names. You wrote our names in a book of life called the Lamb's Book of Life, and it is indelible. It is, it is never to be removed, never to be blotted out, and that is because your love is a great and sovereign love. And we, we want to be secure and confident in that truth, knowing that that's what produces fruit in our lives and produces a desire for obedience and a desire to follow you, a, di- a desire for, if need be, to die for you. So, Lord, just bless this time, and I, I pray that my brothers and sisters here would see you as big and, and re- recognize that we are you're, um, so far beyond the, uh, our, our, our biggest problems and, and that you have things under control. So uh, help me as I deliver this, and I pray that it would be uh, in both an articulate and understandable way and that it would represent your spirit accurate, accurately. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We planted, I think I told you this, but we planted a garden this year. Um, we haven't planted a garden as a family in a long time. It's, it's not a big garden. If you want to see a big garden, you've got to go over to John Barry's house. He t- 
plowed up his entire backyard and planted corn and all kinds of other stuff. But we planted a, a garden, two small uh, garden boxes. We have zucchini coming out our ears. And we were waiting and waiting and waiting for the tomatoes to turn red, you know. Um, nice, juicy, um, zesty tomatoes. And you can slice them, stick a little salt and pepper on it, throw it in between two uh, pieces of bread with some um, lettuce and bacon and make some salsa out of it. And just we're looking forward to those tomatoes. And I hope I'm not distracting you with, with, with food. But, um, you know, th those are the kind of tomatoes that you really can't get in a store. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but it doesn't matter where you shop, Rayleigh, Safeway, Grocery Outlet, but the tomatoes have no taste. You notice? Um, I go to the section vine ripened tomatoes, and I, I, I like to make it a personal mission to find one that actually tastes good. You know, look for the reddest one, perfect. You take it home, you slice into it, and it just doesn't taste like tomato. And um, you preach it, brother. Tomatoes are a big problem in our culture. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's reasons for that. Um, they say that one of the reasons they don't taste like tomatoes is because they pick them while they're green, and then they um, ship them. Um, in refrigerated trucks, and that takes away some of the natural flavors that develop late in the, the fruit. Um, but I, I was just reading something this last week that intrigued me. It's in the science section of the New York Times, where um, some geneticists have said that in trying to engineer a redder tomato that looks better, um, that they have accidentally introduced a mutation into the tomato, and that mutation has taken away the taste. So we have a redder tomato but it doesn't taste as good. And you've got to look it up if you don't believe me. Just go to the science section, you know. So in trying to engineer a redder tomato, we have destroyed the tomato. Now, it's just kind of intriguing to me that, that, that that's kind of how it goes with, with us as humans is we take something and then we decide, hey, we can make this better. And somehow in the process of trying to make it better, we actually ruin it, you know, trying to engineer and control an outcome. And, and that, that's, that's fairly, I think, Think typical. It's not not absolute, but typical. They ruined the tomato. Now you got to grow your own. Order your seeds special online from some place that hasn't contaminated your seeds. But uh, that is, I think, in one sense, uh, an inclination of of, of of our fallen human nature is to attempt to engineer and control outcomes. Um, it's not always wrong, but there are times when it, it clearly is, especially when it comes to trying to engineer and to control future outcomes or to try and engineer and control people or hearts. Um, that's, that's God's domain. And I have found over and over again in my limited lifespan that the more I've tried to engineer and more I've tried to control things to have a favorable outcome, and it usually was a favorable outcome for me personally, the more I mess things up. It's like trying to, trying to make it happen and I end up ruining it. Um, and I've found that that's fairly, fairly typical for, for me, and perhaps you can relate to that as well. You've tried to do something, manage and control and engineer, and just to realize that you've kind of ruined it, like we've ruined the tomato. Um, one writer that I've been reading recently has just noted that how that tendency to control um, and manage and engineer is really a, a part of the curse of the fall. You, know, you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you read, once they made their decision to step away from the Lord and grab hold of something apart from him is the moment that everything started to break apart. And, and the man dominating the woman and the woman vying for control against the man. So you have this power plays, the conflicts of people trying to control each other. And that is, that is, that is uh, human history, is, is the fight for control and the fight for power. Um, writer puts it like this in a very summarized way. He says, curseful relationships. We talk about how we relate to each other as humans on a big macro level as well as it could be on a family or a marital level. 
uh, that curse-full relationships have many characteristics, one of which is our underlying tendency to usurp God's role by trying in futile and powerless ways to control. That middle part is really interesting. The underlying tendency to usurp God's role, that is take the reins and to try and make it happen on our own, um, try and take salvation and deliverance and try and save ourselves, um, largely by exercising this thing we call control. Well, as we come to the First Samuel chapter 14, the latter part, um, that is, I think, the thing that emerges, um, that, that we see a man who's vying for control. He wants to take the reins, and as a result, it messes things up. Now, if, if, if you've been following along with us, um, we're kind of in the middle of a story. There's a, a complete story between 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel, and, but it had three kind of developments. It had Saul, the first king of Israel's uh, his, 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 uh, failure, followed by the success of his son, and then this last part, this third development, which we're looking at right now, is his, his attempt to control um, in some very... Uh, some very destructive and, and, and dangerous ways. Now, just to catch you up to speed, if you weren't with us in terms of where we are in the story, Israel is at war. There are thousands upon thousands of Philistines gathered in the heartland of Israel, um, at least 30,000, um, against 600 Israelite troops with their king. And um, Saul is a, is a man who, who walks by sight, not by faith, and as a result, he is completely paralyzed by what he sees, completely outnumbered. His son, however, is, is an apple that fell way far off the tree, because Jonathan is, is seen as a man of faith, and he's tired of seeing the paralysis of his father because he doesn't really believe in the power of God, and so he initiates, that's chapter 14, and he says to his armor bearer, let's, let's go over to the other side, just the two of us, um, perhaps the Lord will work for us, and then he says his statement of faith and what he believes and what drives him to take the initiative, he says, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That's his acknowledgement that, that salvation ultimately is in the hands of God, not in the hands of men. And so with that confidence, he steps out. And once he gets the green light from the Lord, he scales a cliff, him and his armor bearer. And at the top of the cliff, there are going to be a, there's going to be a garrison of Philistine marines. And then past that, a camp of thousands. Well, he gets to the top, and, and as, as I mentioned last week, it's as if the Lord looks down and says, you know, I delight and I take pleasure in men who trust me like that and hope in my steadfast love. And the Lord showed up on top of that cliff with those two people, and the Lord delivered, not by many, but by two. And we find him slicing through the, the Philistine army. You know, there's 20 men who are dead, and as a result, um, there's a panic that starts to happen in the, in, in the, the camp of thousands. Um, perhaps they were confused, don't know what's going on. And it says that the Lord made the earthquake too, and then it, there was a very great panic, and the, the Philistines started turning on the Philistines. So that's kind of where we are in the story. We're on the, on the verge of this massive victory. Everything is sliding um, in favor of, of the people of Israel, largely because of the faith of one man. Um, but at this point, Saul, the king who's resting, relaxing under a pomegranate tree, paralyzed, realizes something's happening, and he, he, he decides to jump on the bandwagon. Now that the odds have shifted into his favor, and he can see with his eyes, that um, the statistics have changed. Now he joins into the fight, but not before laying upon his men a very foolish and a very oppressive oath, uh, an oath which would um, suffocate the victory. This is, um, this is what it says in verse 24. 
And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. He's talking about the, the army. Now you'll notice in verse 24, I've put in brackets there, and this part might be a little technical, but, it, but what I'm about to say uh, presupposes it. So just follow me for a second. Two translations take this very differently. Um, the ESV, which is what we're using here, um, says the word so right there. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So, the idea is so, in response to the fact that they were hard-pressed, perhaps in battle, Saul had laid on his, uh, an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man. As if, okay, they were fighting, and then to further motivate his men, he then, in, you know, places this oath on his men. Can't eat anything during battle. The NIV takes it very differently. It uses the word because and gives it a completely different sense. And for, for reasons that I don't have time to go into, I think the NIV is correct, that what causes the men of Israel to be hard-pressed are not the Philistines. But it's the oath that's placed upon them, that they can't eat anything in the heat of battle. Now, that's kind of an interesting turn of events because in chapter 13, um, the people of Israel were hard-pressed, same Hebrew word, but this time by the Philistines. And here we are in chapter 14, and the same soldiers are, 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 are hard-pressed, but this time it's by this oath of the king. So, if you can imagine, before they ever leave their little rally point, before they ever fight with the Philistines, um, in the gathering, Saul lays out this oath, which means this oath here in verse 24 that he places on his men, which causes so much, what he says, hard-pressed experience, uh, took place somewhere back in verse 20, I think back in verse 20. So I'll, let me back up there for a second, and then we'll be done with the technical part. Um, sometimes the, the, the Bible will take a second look at, at something. Like Genesis 1, you get a summary of creation, seven days. And then chapter 2 is just a greater focusing on the detail of what took place largely in the sixth day. Uh, two looks at the same event, one in greater detail. And I think that's what's going on here. Um, so just kind of backing up to verse 17. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, um, this is after he hears reports that something's happening in the Philistine camp, count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there because he snuck away. He attacked uh, in secret, he didn't tell his father. Verse 18, so Saul said to Ahijah, he's a priest, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult of the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. I'm going to come back to that in a second. There's a point to be made. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied. So they all rallied together, and I believe this is where the oath of verse 24 took place, where he laid on his men. It's the only really understandable place where he could have done it. They didn't have walkie-talkies. They didn't have uh, radio men at the time. So you have to communicate while your men are there. So what he does in this moment is he, before they leave to go join the battle, they, um, they receive this oath that, listen, you're not to eat a single thing under curse. Cursed is the man who puts food to his mouth. That's the, that's the oath that he lays on them before they go into battle. Now, as I said, I believe this is, once again, his attempt to take control of the situation, to usurp God's place, to take the reins, and somehow um, engineer a different... I'm going to skip this. This is just a way of saying that verses 24 and following are a second look at what was in verses 20 through 23. But one of the things, if you read really closely, it's part of this control which kind of we can reflect on our own lives and ask ourselves, are, are we the same way? 
are, are several things that come out in the details of the, of, the, of, of the text, one of which is to compare verses 19 and uh, just 19 to verse 24. As I read earlier, it said that uh, Saul had summoned the ark and he was talking to the priest, but when he saw the tumult, which is a, you know, a way of saying that all of the chaos that's going on over in the Philistine camp, when he saw it um, increasing more and more and more, he tells the priest to withdraw his hand. That's, it's really interesting because um, we're told in other places in the Bible, one of the things that the priest would wear, which was a gracious gift to God's people, would they would wear this thing called an ephod. And in or on this ephod were these stones called the Urim Thummim. Now, those are hard to say. But they were gracious means by which God would give his people, people detailed directions as to what to do. So they could go and get specific instructions as to what to do in, in battle or so forth. David... Um, in 1 Samuel, would use this ephod and the Urim and Thummim eight different times to inquire, Lord, what do you want me to do? So now keep that in mind. He, he, he tells the priest, you know, come here, what are we supposed to do? But then when he sees things starting to progress, he says, withdraw your hand. In other words, we really don't need to seek the Lord's direction in this. That's withdraw your hand. We don't need to seek the Lord's direction. And what does he do in its place? Well, in, instead of seeking the Lord's direction, the Lord's wisdom as to how we're supposed to do this, instead what he does is he places this very oppressive oath on his men who are heading into battle that they can't eat. They have to fast the entire day. You can see he's, he's trying to take control. Instead of submitting himself and seeking the heart and directive of the Lord and saying, Lord, what would you have of us now that they're on the run? He says, withdraw your hand. We're not going to see the Lord's direction. Instead, he takes the reins into his own hands, tries to make it happen by, by placing this, this foolish and oppressive oath on his soldiers. Well, that's, that's one of the things. That, behind that is a tremendous arrogant, uh, uh, well, what do we call it, um, presumption. Like this is, a, this, is, this is one of the things that's underneath his control. Is he believes he knows what's best, and in the moment, I don't need the Lord's direction, so in my arrogance, I'm going to presume that I can do better or I can add to or I can take control and engineer a better success than if I just trust to the Lord and ask for directions. And as I, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, that's, that's so typical of, of our part of our human control issue is that, and this is especially prominent among men, but it happens with women too, is, is that we have this great, I don't know, understanding or, 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 or sense of respect for our own judgment that we, we easily think, well, if we do it this way, well, then we're going to have success. Um, I can manage this. I can take care of this. And we presuppose we know the right way without ever once um, really bowing the knee and just saying, Lord, I... Um, I'm not sure what to do in this situation, but I'm, I'm looking for your directive. And even if I have to wait for it, I'm going to wait for it. I, I, I firmly believe on the basis of Scripture itself that the Lord has promised that he will provide answers for us. Sometimes no answer is, uh, uh, no answer is an answer. But he does promise to, to respond to us if we're, if we're genuinely seeking him. That's James 1. If anyone is without it, wisdom, ask, and the Lord will provide. But he doesn't do it. Instead, he just takes matters into his own hands and presumes, hey, the curse is the way to go. Now, I have uh, made this mistake many times, and I continue sometimes to make this mistake of coming to my own kind of elevated decision as to what's right and, and what's wrong and the right way to do things, and it, it hurt people. Um, 
one of the first fights that Deanne and I ever got in, um, four years after we were married. It, actually, it wasn't the first fight. First one was, first one was on day eight after we got married. We got upset at each other and sought a side of each other that we didn't ever see. And I'm like, who are you? She's like, who are you? And it's like, did we make a mistake? <laughs> but the first real fight, a disagreement, was over the issue of how we were going to educate our children before we ever had children. Before, I, mean, I, I think she might have been pregnant with Daniel. And um, anyway, we had this big old um, argument. I come out of a public school background, had a negative experience in Christian education. My, my wife had a great Christian experience in a Christian uh, education. So we both had some pretty strong opinions as to how we were going to educate our children. It was still like six, seven years off, you know. And um, I remember it lasted for almost two weeks, I think. We were like, because it was an intellectual uh, issue, and neither of us were willing to, to budge. And, you know, I look back on, on that, you know, we both have the, we know what's right. And I just think, what an ignoramus I was. And, and what, a, what an arrogant, presupposing person to think that, you know, given the various personalities of our children and time and place and are there going to be schools around? I mean, so many variables. How stupid we were to insist on our way long before we ever had kids. And as it turned out, we've had kids in every form of education and had to pray. I mean, we're forced to our knees saying, Lord, what would you have? What's the best thing for our kids? And leaving it in his hands instead of uh, presupposing what the Lord, the only method that the Lord can use, you know. But that's, that's, that, that, that's, that's part of being a, con, can, often can be a controlling person is that you have the right, the right way. Um, and rather than like, uh, unlike Saul, rather than just humbling yourself and saying, I want direction from the Lord. You know, you just make up your mind and you move without that. And that's, that's one of the things he does. He takes the reins into his hands because he is arrogant in his presumptuousness. Another thing that you see here that comes out, and we're focusing primarily on what this is right here, and, and then you'll see how it unfolds in a second. But another thing that you see, if you read carefully, is that, that his, his taking reins into his hands and take matters into his hands is, is for a very self-serving reason. Um, you'll notice the content of the curse. Verse 24, it says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Let's back up. Let's play that a little slower. Um, until, fast forward a little bit, I am avenged on my enemies. There's a big I there. There's no we or there's no um, uh, Israel or even the name of the Lord that the Lord would avenge through us. No, he wants to make it happen because he has a personal vengeance issue. And that's what's fueling his fire. But it's fundamentally about him. It's fundamentally about him. And that too is something that is part of the curse control. Is most of the time when we're vying for control or we're trying to engineer an outcome, most of the time it's because lurking underneath what we're doing is a big eye. There's something in it. Either it's engineering things so that we don't feel as insecure on the inside or engineering things because we're frustrated and we want the situation changed because we don't want to be frustrated anymore or because we have a, 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 a lust or a greed and we, we, we want it so bad that we're willing to engineer life so that we can get what we want. And underneath that drive and underneath that control, that engineering is just a big me. And that is, that is fundamentally not Christian and is fundamentally not part of a new create, creature life that we have within us. But rather to, to, to um, 
to sacrifice the self for the sake of the Lord, first and foremost, but also for the needs of other people. Wow, pop. It's interesting, too, that, that, that we can Christianize this control, too. And Christians do it all, all the time. Say, for example, we, have a, we, we know that we're supposed to reconcile. That's a, that's a biblical instruction. Part of the gospel is we're to reconcile relationships. Well, some people are, are people, and I'm a little bit like this, who can't stand a lack of resolution or a lack of peace in my life. So if I'm at odds with somebody, it's, it's really hard for me to, to feel good. Um, usually in those times, I have to just recenter myself on the Lord. But if not, you know what ends up happening? I, I try to manage things so that I feel at peace again. So let's say you and your wife have an argument, and you happen to be a person just like that. You can't stand the lack of resolution. You know what you do? You push. Hey, we need to reconcile. That's what God says. We need to reconcile. That's what God says. And you start pushing, pushing, pushing with no allowance for the timing of the Holy Spirit to work in your wife's life. And you have effectively taken the reins and pushed, pushed, pushed with biblical command in an effort to control because you're the one who's feeling a lack of peace. Same thing. We, we, we easily want to control to manage the outcome um, largely for self-centered reasons. And, and that, it too, is, is, is Saul. He's wanting to manage things and engineer things because he has a personal vengeance issue. Um, so that, too, is underneath this control. And then the third one here is that if you add the first two together, if someone believes, apart from seeking the Lord, wisdom from the Lord and so forth, if someone believes that, that I can make it happen and I know the right way without consultation, without humility and without wisdom and counsel and so forth, and they're driven by a self-centered agenda, it will inevitably lead to oppression. In relationships, in life, in a church, oppression. Now th think about this for a moment. These men are in the Middle East Back to the text. These men are in the Middle East, Middle Eastern heat. They are going to be chasing Philistines up and down hills, through canyons, and they can't take any food in. I don't think that's God talking right there. And he has just laid an oath on them saying, you can't eat. Now, I have run one marathon in my life. It was my first, and it was definitely my last. That's how much I love running. I really don't like running at all. Um, but it was a bucket list thing. I had to do it, and unfortunately, I did it when I was 19, so I don't think I could do it today. But um, one thing that I know is that by the time I hit mile 20, there were these little, and they had them before that, but at the end, they became more rapid, at least in the one that I ran in. There were these little stations, these little tables where people would come out and they'd hand you a, a cup of sugary drink, you know. And then, uh, in my case, it was half of a banana, you know. And you're running and you're, you're drinking it, slopping it all over and eating it, and then there's a trash can, you throw it away. But, boy, when you're, when you're at mile 20 and you're running and, and you're counting telephone poles, like that's how, that's how monotonous it is. And then you see one of those stations and you're like, oh, station. And you pick up the pace, and they grab you that sugary drink, and then you eat half a banana. It just gives you a boost of strength, and then you run, start to wind down. Then there's another table, ooh, banana and a drink, you know, and it keeps you going. And the fact of the matter, and this is a really uh, gross, uh, uh, loose translation, but, you know, the fact of the matter is Saul basically said, there's no, there's no refueling stations for you guys. You're going you're gonna to sweat it out in the, in, the, um, in the Middle Eastern heat. 
no, no, no strength, no renewing of strength. And the text tells us two different times. Once it says that they were faint, and the second one that they were very faint, at the edge of utter exhaustion. Hit the wall, can't move anymore. That's oppression. And it's, as I said, that's, that's also something that we easily do to people in order to get them to do what we want to do or, or to fulfill something that we want them to fulfill either in us or for us. Um, as I said in the, in the example of a husband-wife relationship and one's putting the pressure on the other to conform so that that person feels better, it's, that's, that's, that's a subtle form of oppression. Um, I've known of instances um, too often where um, wives, with Christian wives with, with, with good intention, concerned about the, this, the spirituality of her husband, um, will push the husband to be the spiritual leader in the house. And to push, push, push. You need to be the spiritual leader. Be the spiritual leader. Be the spiritual leader. And um, without a lot of trust that God will do it in his time, and that is, ends up being a, a subtle form of oppression. And typically, sometimes, it's because the wife wants to look good in her Christian community by having a husband who's a leader. Driven by a personal agenda, pushing, maybe in the right direction, but for all the wrong reasons. And that kind of oppression does not provide room for a person to grow graciously and willingly. Um, but pushing and, and oppressing. Churches can do that to their members, too. You know, you get a big picture of where you, what do you want the church to look like and how many people you want in it. And the next thing you know, the leadership will be trying to push and manage and control and engineer people using guilt or whatever means necessary to try to lay the burden of ministry, serve more, serve more, serve more, so we can, we can arrive at this secret agenda of being big. It's oppression. It's a very self-serving driven agenda. And just to, just to, to, to uh, clarify, um, that does not mean that, that we don't, in faith, encourage each other, confront each other, discipline when we need to, but we do so in faith. And we do not control or in engineer the outcomes. We have to leave that up to the Lord. The heart of men is God's domain. The future is God's domain. We simply are asked to be faithful and to trust the Lord. So how does this work then? This is, this is kind of underneath this word we call control, which comes up in, in Saul's story. How does it work out for him? You know, God was doing just fine with the two guys. He comes along, grabs hold of the reins. Does it work out well? No, it doesn't. He puts both his son and he puts his army um, in danger. Here, I'm just, I'm just going to summarize the rest of the story so you can see that it really doesn't work itself out. Um, us trying to help God out by taking the reins. Um, we're told that the men are in the fight. And Jonathan, of course, wasn't part of the little pre-briefing. He didn't get the memo not to eat because he was away. So they're running through the forest, and they're tired, and they're taking down the Philistines. You know, it's just a complete rout. And, um, and Jonathan sees some honey there. You know, it's like a little, little refreshment station, um, a providential one. Like right in the middle of the forest, there's honey on the ground, sugar, energy. Jonathan's like, wow, the Lord provides. Doesn't say that in the text, but it's a bit of a, bit of a, a guess. But there's honey there on the ground. So he, he reaches his staff into the honey, um, perhaps because there were still bees there. He brings it to his lips, and, and it says that he, he, he ate the honey and his eyes brightened. 
like the, the station at mile 20 is like, yes, now I'm ready to go again. But then some guys who heard the memo, they're like, uh, again, my paraphrase, uh, Jonathan, your, your dad expressly, strictly pronounced a curse on anyone who would eat anything. To which Jonathan replies, and, and this is worth reading, because you sense that he knows that his father is damaging the, the work of deliverance. Um, it says, then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Now, the Lord is still gracious. He still delivers. He still saves. But Saul gets in the way. Trying to control and take the reins, he actually gets in the way and he impedes the deliverance. That's kind of the sense of what, what Jonathan says. So he put Jonathan at risk by this oath. But then he also puts his men at risk but he could, because he puts them in a place of vulnerability. They haven't eaten. It says that they were very faint, on the edge of utter exhaustion. They cannot eat till evening, until the sun goes down. The last little sliver of sun goes down over the horizon. Now you can imagine, now the text gives the indication that there were sheep and there were cows all around. Just steaks and lamb just waiting for them. Okay? Uh, this reminds me of Madagascar, you know, when Alex the lion looks in, all he sees is steaks, you know. It's this, you can imagine these guys looking for the sun to go down, um, completely exhausted, just waiting for the last little sliver to go over the horizon. And the text tells us that they pounced on the live animals. They pounced on them, they, they killed them, and they ate them on the ground with the blood still in it. This isn't well done, this isn't medium rare, this is mooing, <laughs> literally. Um, a kind of an animalistic tearing into the animals. That's what they do. And if you're, if you're familiar with the law of Moses, you'll know that's a big no-no. You don't eat meat with the blood in it because that is specially reserved for sacrifice. In the blood is life. So they were to drain the blood. That's why you have a whole system of kosher food. Um, to drain the blood properly. Here they just, they just broke the word of the Lord. Interesting. Jonathan breaks the word of the human king ignorantly. And the king puts his people in a vulnerable place where they violate the word of God himself. A very dangerous place to be. And the text goes on to say when Saul finds out, he, he does kind of a lame attempt of trying to, to make atonement. He builds an altar and so forth. But right after that, as if it didn't even register, he, he goes on to, to say, hey, let's go attack the Philistines tonight. Like he's got this vendetta. He wants to take them down. And the people, now that they've had some fresh meat, they're like, okay, we can do that. And the priest kind of raises his hand and says, do you think we should check with the Lord? Do you think we should check with the Lord? He was full, ready to just go ahead and attack again without seeking the Lord. Because he knew the right way. This time, uh, Saul acquiesces and he says, okay, let's check with the Lord this time. So he uses his little priestly garment to discern, should we go, should we not go? And, and there's no answer. And at this point, Saul gets very upset. Like, who's the culprit? Who's to blame for this? Never really thinking. Really the one who caused all the problem and trouble was himself. So they go through a system of, of uh, oh, and I should add one more thing. That this time, not only does he, does he um, repeat the oath, but this time he adds capital punishment to it. He says, for as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. 
sounds like the words of the Lord in Genesis when he says, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It kind of feels like he's taking the reins and usurping God's place. Capital punishment for eating? Seriously? Well, they draw some straws and so forth. Not draw straws, lots. And, and the lot falls on Jonathan. He's the reason they're not getting an answer. And I don't think he's the guilty one, but it's to push the point. So, as the story goes, Saul was fully intending on killing his son because of a stupid vow he made. But the people get in the way. The men see him as a hero. This is the one who's worked with the Lord and brought deliverance to Israel. You are not going to kill this man. So it's, it's interesting that Jonathan is used by God to deliver God's people in spite of the king, and now the people are delivering Jonathan from the king. And kind of at the end, the sense is that the king stands alone, estranged from his son and from his, and from his own army who turned on him and sided with Jonathan. How does it work out? Not too well. He puts his own, own son's life in jeopardy, and he put the, puts the people of God in a very vulnerable place where they, they end up succumbing to the temptation of appetite, and they break the word of the Lord. Well, that's what happens when, um, when we don't live by faith, that God holds the reins. He's the only one who can really engineer outcomes and hearts, and that we should leave those reins in his hand rather than taking them to ourselves, believing that we know better, presuming in our arrogance of, of, of following some kind of a personal private agenda that will make us feel better or have something that we want, and, and in the end, oppressing and not caring for the people that are given to us and that we're supposed to love. And it turns out really bad. And that, my friend, uh, that church is how we are not to live. But I dare say, many of us do, some or much of exactly the same thing. In our relationships, taking the reins, managing, engineering. And you know what? We may get redder tomatoes, but it's going to be some pretty nasty fruit that comes out of it. So as we, as we seek to be people who are seeking God's kingdom first, you know, in our, our marriages, in our families, in our, our neighborhoods, in our church, in our community, you know, it comes with, uh, first of all, the realization that, you know, Lord, you are sufficient enough to save all by yourself. You do not need me. I'm saved by many or by few, and so I walk by faith in that. But also, as we walk to seek his direction, his wisdom, and, and humbly look for his way, rather than simply assuming that we know the right way, searching our hearts and asking ourselves, is this driven by me, or is it a, is it a genuine desire to see Christ lifted up and people helped? And then to be very careful not to use methods that will step on people to get what we want or oppress them, either in word or in deed. In that way, we, 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 live, we live by faith. We live by faith. We trust him. You got the reins, and I'm not going to take control into my own hands. And it's quite a freeing experience to be able to say, yes, all right. I'm not saying we don't act responsibly or we don't take action. It's just we act and, act and we respond in faith. And the reason is because... Because God always comes through and because he is good. He may not come through in the way that we always want, but he comes through because he's good. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded, I, I, one last thing. I don't know if there's an intentional, typological connection between Jonathan and Jesus. 
But there are some striking similarities between the two. Jonathan is one who knows that the Lord saves by many or by, in his case, two. And he trusts that Jonathan is a man who's under the curse of his father. And yet, when you read the text, you realize he says, here I am, I will die. As if he's resolved to go ahead and die if need be. Fast forward a thousand years and you realize there was a, an, another hero um, who, who also um, stood alone. Someone who was under a curse from his father. But somebody who wasn't rescued by the people, but rather crucified and rejected by the people. And yet he was willing to say, here I am, I will die as a surrender of love for you and for me. And that the father who placed the curse upon him was not foolish, but rather willing to offer the ultimate sacrifice for God so loved the world that he gave. And there, Jesus took the curse and died. Jonathan didn't have to, but Jesus did. And not only is he the cause and the reason for us to be able to release control, but he is the perfect example of it. That when he faced his death, he, he said and showed us what it means to, to, to lose control in the right sense of the word. Not my will. That's engineering and control. Not my will, but yours be done. And completely surrendered, and the next day surrendered to the point of death. Death on a cross. And that, that's, that's, that's the level of release and the level of surrender that the Christian is to be. Because God is good. Because on the other side of that death, on the other side of where God's taking you, you know, ultimately where it takes you is resurrection. And that's what we live for. The resurrection from the dead. So as, as, as we think about coming to, you know, communion, I want you to think, are, are, are there places or things or situations or relationships that you've made a mess of because you have been just like this? Taken the reins, managed, pushed, pressed, engineered. And if so, then, then we come to the table where Jesus surrendered it all in control and he did it for us, is to be able to say, you know, if he did that for me, I know I can trust him with, with control. And, um, and to begin turning over the reins to the Lord rather than taking them upon yourself. I would just ask you to really con consider that this morning. Are there messes like this one, because you've tried to engineer life. And this morning is a time in which you just come, and, and I, I pray that you'll have the courage to say, Lord, I want you to take this. I don't want to drive a car anymore, and I don't want to try and steer these horses, because it doesn't work. And then confess to the Lord, and, and he's gracious, and he's so kind. And if you need to confess and, and, and talk to somebody else that you've made a mess of, saying, I'm sorry, I've tried to control you for me do that too. It just brings so much healing um, to a relationship, to a community, and to your own soul just to release control this morning. So um, I am going to pray and that if, if, if those who are serving communion could come up and then you come and take it as you wish. Um, 
this communion together. Lord, I just thank you for this time. I pray that you would do work in our hearts, in our lives. Um, Spirit, we just give you this time to uh, minister to us in the way we need to be ministered to. In Jesus' name, amen.
Now to our time of uh, benevolent offering, and this is a, an offering we use to help those within the church and the community 
um, to make ends meet when they can't do it. And I know just this past week we had people come in and um, God uses it mightily. And so I want to encourage you, and just as Dan said in the sermon, to ask God, God, what would you have us do? What would you have us give uh, for this? And, and thank you. Thank you to all of you for your faithful giving in that. I know that we've been able to hand out thousands and thousands of dollars in food and gas and helping people with uh, bills that they otherwise couldn't pay. So let the Lord lead you in giving. Let's commit this offering and time uh, to the Lord. God, thank you. Thank you that we can give now and that you use this giving to fill in the gap uh, for folks who don't have. And Lord, I'm grateful that, um, that you provide this. And I'm even more grateful that there's a day coming when there will be no more shortfall. There will be no more needs. They will all be met in you. You will be our God and you will be our people. And so, Father, in the meantime, we entrust this to you. Use it for your, your mighty glory. Live by the faith that one day we too will rise like you. There's a peace I've come to know, though my heart and flesh may fail. There's an anchor for my soul, I can say it is. Jesus has overcome, and the grave is overwhelmed. Victory is won, is risen from the dead, and I
Jesus has overcome, and the grave is overwhelmed, the victory is won, he is risen from the dead. Father, because you have risen from the dead, the victory is ours, Father, may we take what we've learned today, Lord, and apply it daily to our lives, loving all and pointing all towards your cross, Lord. Father, be with us, be with your church, Lord. Use us in your name. Father, we pray, amen. Church, you are dismissed. God is love. Remember to stack the chairs in piles of five along the side. We're feeding the homeless tonight. God bless you all. You're dismissed. One, two, five.